Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NYU Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The NY Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of Nuclear Guest. Of course, I am your host as always, Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest. Uh, you know, of course, we every guest is a great guest, but today we have a great guest, and we're going to talk about something we, I don't think we've talked about on any previous episode, and that is the Navy's role in nuclear deterrence. So you you might be asking yourself, well, who is your guest then? And of course, I'm talking about Curtis Buckles, who is a nuclear weapons policy advisor to OpNav N54. Curtis, welcome to NucleCast. Thanks. So, yeah, it's uh, good to have you. Now, for those of you in the nuclear community, you, of course, know Curtis. He's been a fixture in our community for two decades plus. I mean, he was an ICBM guy before he was a you know, the Navy's nuclear policy advisor. And so since we've never really talked about the Navy's role in deterrence, we often have lab, we talk to the labs a lot. We talk to, you know, the air force folks a lot. And so it's important to get a sense of what the Navy contributes to deterrence. So can you start us off by, by giving us an overview of the Navy's role in nuclear deterrence? Uh, Okay. Well, you've got to start with what the Navy's job is in the first place. The, the Navy's job is to organize, train, maintain, and equip forces for the combatant commanders. So our the main combatant commander, obviously, here is Commander Stratcom. So we train, organize, train, maintain, and equip the nuclear forces that the Navy is responsible for, which is the SSBN force, and then the... the Takamo or take charge and move out aircraft that uh, form a integral part of the nuclear command and control structure. Those are the two big components that we have. So Navy is responsible for organizing uh, those forces uh, so that we can give them to the combatant commander to use within his operational plans. Um, Developing new capability based on what the combatant commander says he can't do. Uh, so, or um, so for example, if the combatant commander says, I, "I, you know, I can't hold this set of targets at risk. I need a capability to do that." Then he turns to the services to to try and go build and develop that capability. Um, sustaining the forces that we uh, that we present now, uh, which is the, like I said, the SSBN force and the SL, uh, sea launch ballistic missiles, uh, that sort of includes new, uh, building new things to replace the things we have, like the Columbia class, uh, SSBN is really a replacement for the existing SSBN. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, uh, and, and the, uh, the next uh, version of the uh, TACMO aircraft, building that and, and providing those forces to the combatant commanders. Um, 
wrapped up in there is other things like education, uh, professional military education for, for the, the, the whole force structure and then the, 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 the Department of Defense wide because um, Navy runs the nuclear, the, the Naval War College, the war colleges and the, and the postgraduate schools and those things. Uh, for the for the joint force, um, uh, so that's uh, that's probably about the the broad brush of what the Navy does, uh, because we're the ones providing all those forces. We get involved in just about every aspect of, like the nuclear weapons enterprise that we can think of. Uh, we're the direct interface to the National Nuclear Security Administration for developing new weapons capabilities that they have to do. Uh, as a, that's a function of our uh, organizing, training, uh, maintaining, and equipping function. So all of that is done because it's gotta, it's gotta marry up to a weapon system that the services provide. Um, because we understand that, we also sort of get into a little bit of the, okay, how can, how's the best way to use this capability discussion? So uh, Navy, in a big picture, Navy uh, is interested, it is, does develop its own like maritime strategy. And that's the, the Navy looking at how do you fight from a maritime environment? Because we're the the uh, center of excellence for that, you know, just like the Air Force is the center of excellence for fighting from the air and the Army is the center of excellence for fighting from the land. The Navy is the center of excellence for fighting from the sea. So we do think through strategy and policy, just things like that, uh, so that we can provide the best forces to the combatant commanders. That's probably the the gist of it, of what Navy does in the nuclear weapons business. So we provide the SSBNs, we provide TACAMO and the whole uh, nuclear command and control structure that supports getting the message to the SSBNs. Um, and that's, that's what, in a big picture nutshell, that's what Navy does. So with, with the Navy providing the, the sea leg of the triad, can you tell us about the current structure and just, you know, what's the lay down and uh, of the, Ohio class, where is it? What does it do? How many do we have? How do they operate? And then, you know, with the Ohio class submarine expected to be replaced, like you said, by Columbia, can you tell us what that'll look like? Um, okay. So today's force structure for the Ohio class submarine is we have 14 submarines, um, of which we have a certain number at sea all the time. Uh, ready to, to execute the combatant commander's orders. Um, a certain number are always going through some kind of a maintenance cycle. Uh, they be in the dry docks to replace a, a, a shaft, a propeller shaft, or uh, you know, uh, some big things like that. Uh, a certain number will always be in some level of, of refurbishment, re- um, um, you know, re resupplying themselves uh, between uh, patrols. Uh, an SSBN will normally uh, have about a. I have to think about this because I think it's about sixty to ninety day patrol period, um, and then between those patrol periods, 
uh, they'll do that uh, resupply, refurbish it, and then they'll go back out again. Uh, there's two sets of crews per SSBN, a blue crew and a gold crew, and they will swap out back and forth uh, between those uh, resupply periods. And the whole purpose of that is to keep those SSBNs at sea as much as possible. Um, the, the, I heard the Admiral say that the best place for an SSBN to be is at sea because it doesn't really break too much if it's at sea and, you, and it operates like it should as it's at sea. So the best place to keep them is at sea. Uh, so we try and keep as many at sea as possible, but the combatant commander has a certain requirement that he has to have. And as long as we're satisfied with that requirement, the rest of them we get to see as much as we can just to keep them out there. Um, uh, they're designed to, uh, once they get to the dive point, to basically disappear. They go and disappear and nobody knows where they're going. They're given big, huge areas of ocean to operate in, but the captain of the SSBN will go into that big, huge area of the ocean and not tell anybody where he's going. So he's just, his whole purpose is to go out there and disappear because uh, that's how we maintain the ability of the secured assured second strike by making sure that nobody knows where those things are and they can't be attacked directly. Um, I'm trying to think of the, that's about the, it, uh, Columbia. So right now we have 14 Ohio missile submarines to make sure we meet the minimum requirements levied on us by commander stratcom, which I can't get into here. Um, uh, but it's a simple math equation you, to get to those numbers of I got to have so many 14 in order to have enough that I can do refueling overhauls, uh, uh, the, the, the maintenance cycles, all that stuff. So that's why you have the number you have. Uh, one of the big factors with Ohio and why it was at 14 was to ensure we had at least two that you could put into uh, in, uh, a reactor refueling cycle, which was a two three two or three year uh, period where the, S, the submarine was not available at all because it was going through that <clears throat> with columbia we're, we're we're able to cut that number back to 12 because um the reactor is going to be built for the life of the submarine in other words it shouldn't require a refueling overhaul so the only thing driving the, the requirement for how many columbia we will need will actually be the uh, combatant commander's requirements uh, on how many submarines he needs to support his operational plans. And then we factor in all the other maintenance stuff because you still have to do the, the, the smaller level maintenance, like replace sh uh, um, shafts and, and, you know, things like that, but you won't have to do that really long refueling overhaul. Right. So. And so. That's the, the number of tubes on each, uh, we're, we're going to go down mm -hmm. tubes considerably. Yep. Can you talk yep. about that? Yep. yep. So Ohio was a built originally with 24 missile tubes. Uh, you have to remember the time period that we were thinking we were building Ohio in was we were right in the middle of the cold war, uh, toe to toe with the Ruskies, uh, the, in the Soviet union. Um, so it, the, the philosophy there was to get as many warheads to sea as you possibly can 
uh, on one boat. Uh, So they built them to 24. If you look at the history of the SSBN force, it went from 16 tubes to 20 tubes to 24 tubes on, uh, on uh, Ohio. So, I mean, that was the, the, the way uh, history drove the SSBN force in the cold war days. Since the cold war days, you look at it and you ask yourself, do I need that many tubes on the SSBN? Um, because there's a trade-off that you have to work through uh, when you do a program to build something of um, the more tubes I put on the SSBN, the longer the SSBN comes and the more I drive to uh, having to change infrastructure to support that. Or, uh, you know, may, I might have to, if the submarine gets too long, I might have to build a whole new dry dock. And that becomes a really expensive proposition for the Navy. So when Columbia was first laid out, the AOA, so one of the the aspects of the Columbia program is the submarine needs to be uh, viable uh, till 2080. We're building the submarine to be viable till 2080. So you have to think about that period of time from like 2030. 30, 2040 out to 2080 and how the submarine is going to operate in that environment against the threats that, that could be posed in that environment. So you want to build a submarine that is uh, as stealthy as, as you can get it today so that it's, it's still usable way out into 2080 from a security perspective. So one of the prop one of the, ways that that's being done is to go to electronic propulsion, uh, you know, uh, the, the, you know, not the diesel generators running the propellers, but, uh, or the, the, um, the turbines running the propellers, but actual electrical propulsion driven by the reactor. Well, that extended the, that, that caused a necessity for more room in the engine room, which drove the submarine to be longer. And if you put, four more tubes on Columbia, you actually get significantly bigger than Ohio. Right now, Columbia is supposed to be about 10 feet longer than Ohio is, even at, even at 16 tubes. So if you go much bigger than that, then that drives whole new discussions of infrastructure improvements that have to be made because Right now, Columbia is designed to use most of the infrastructure that the Ohio weapon system used and save the nation a lot of money. So, um, but it's, it's, like I said, it's a trade-off when you get into programmatics with programs, you have to go through those requirements, cost and trade-offs and, and come to the, the most optimal solution that, that you can. So now, one of the questions I've been given some thought to over the last couple of years is the continued survivability of ballistic missile submarines, just in terms of, you know, if, if, for example, quantum computing becomes a reality and we're able to have much more, you know, much greater fidelity in terms of looking at the ocean or, you know, the utility of UUVs, passive sonar, all of these sort of capabilities, you know, and for, for those in the disarmament community who have said, get rid of the 
you know, the ICBM leg and maybe get rid of the bombers and just have submarines, which would then allow an adversary to focus on detecting those submarines and just advancement of technology. Is this something that you ever think about? Is it, you know, is it uh, something that's, you know, a relevant concern and, and how do you think about it and address that? The, so I'll say that the Navy is constantly thinking about the security of the submarine. Uh, there's an entire shop that that's their only job is to think about the threats to the submarine, think about what those threats represent and think about, are they really threats? And, the, and they do it not from a threat-based picture, but they actually do it from a physics-based discussion. So they look at the physics of what you can do and say, is that a really a threat? Uh, that, so they're doing that all the time. Um, the, the invisible oceans discussion, I, yeah. I'm an Air Force guy. So I'm not a submariner. <laughs> so, yeah. but every time I, I ask that question to a submariner, I sort of get a giggle out of them. And it's then the answer I get was, well, we've been trying to do that for how many decades now, and we've not been able to do it. And what makes you think we're going to be able to do it today? And oh, by the way, even if they can see to the bottom of the ocean, the ocean's a very big thing. It, it, you know, quantum computing and doing all it's going to take a lot just to find him. And even if you do find him, what can you do? Right. So, I mean, if you do get lucky and find him, what can you do? Uh, because he's going to be far from everything and you're probably not going to find him and keep him long. So I don't, I won't say that we're not worried about it, but every time I talk to somebody who, knows it's just yeah we're looking at that but we don't we're not worried about that because it's 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 too big a problem for anybody to solve even with com com computing um even if you can solve the problem um it, needle in the haystack is an understatement when you're talking about a 500 foot long submarine in the middle of the pacific yeah uh, so <laughs> It's a challenge then. Um, it's a challenge. But like I said, we don't take it, we don't, um, we take it, we take all the threats to the submarine seriously. And we constantly are looking at, uh, is it, a, are there problems on the horizon that we need to worry about and all those things, which is why Columbia is being built the way it, it is in some degree is because we've thought through what most of those problem sets and, and are addressing them. So it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, I, I'd like for you as, so you spent a career as a Air Force missileer, and then now you've spent a second career doing nuclear policy for the Navy. And so my question for you when we come back from the break is, how do the Air Force and the Navy look at the strategic deterrence mission differently? So you're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the ANWA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence.
So we're back and we're talking to Curtis Buckles, who is the nuclear weapons policy advisor to OpNav N54. And before the break, I gave you a challenging question. And it's one I'd be curious to know, you know, how you see it, having lived in both the Air Force and Navy worlds, how would you fundamentally say the two services look at this this mission and the challenges it presents differently? Um, the biggest difference right now between the Navy and the Air Force is, to the Air Force's credit, they've got a bigger problem to deal with. They've got three systems that they have to worry about, uh, the ICBM force, the the bomber force, and, and the three airplanes now, uh, and then the whole dual-capable aircraft system discussion. So they've got a much bigger problem. Uh, and much LRSO. Bigger, and, uh, well, that's in the bomber force and that whole all, all the stuff that goes yeah. with the bomber force. And the nuclear command and control to go along with it, which most of the NC-3... You know, Navy's got its little pieces, but most of the NC-3 belongs to the Air Force, uh, the hardware and the, the, that, or the Space Force, which used to be the Air Force. Um, yeah. So their problem set is a whole lot bigger. That allows Navy to think about our stuff, uh, you know, focus on it a little bit more. Um, that's probably one of the biggest uh, things. The whole concept of operation drives different dis- different ways of thinking about it, you know. Um in the Navy, you're given a 05 commander, the command of a submarine, and you're sending him out uh, to with the, the, the whole crew, and you're sending him out to do God's work out in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, Air Force, that's a bit different structure. You know, the ICBM guys are tied into the their command post, which is tied into the base, which is tied into everything. The bomber force, you know, yeah, you launch them and send them, but they're still... Uh, connected to to the to the infrastructure and support to it all, all that so that 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 different concept of operations drives to different mentalities and thinking um those are probably two of the biggies that i can think of right off the top of my head uh that cause differences in the way to think but at the end of the day we both take the mission seriously um we both uh, understand uh that uh where it fits into the policy dynamic and, and we're committed to doing the mission the way we need to do it. So. So I recently spoke with Frank Miller, who was a member of the strategic posture commission and good man. (laughs) One of the things, things that Frank said was he said, you know, Hey, we, we may very well need more, than the 12 planned Columbia class submarines. Is that something the Navy's thinking about? And, you know, for a, a service that, you know, it's want to be at 291 ships and, you know, that's, that's a challenge in and of itself. The Navy shipbuilding is, you know, it's, it's always a fight for funding is there a, what has the Navy really developed a plan in case uh, more, you know, Columbia class is required, or is it essentially, yep, we'll build them as long as Congress will fund them? So if you look at the Columbia program from the beginning, the 12 number has always been, we need at least 12. 
there's there there is a it has always been a underlying acknowledgement that requirements could change uh i mean look at the security environment today and tell me requirements aren't changing um so the program has always had an option to buy more and we've looked at what it would take to buy more and when we would have to make decisions on that um uh, so we know when we can when we've, we have a plan laid out that if we need to buy more uh, we can go buy more. Uh, that discussion starts with a requirements discussion from the combatant commander. So he's got that we have to, as a nation, acknowledge we need to go buy more because buying more is an expensive proposition. It's it's uh, cheaper than trying to extend the hull of the submarine, but it's still an expensive proposition. Um, so and we can buy more if we need to. Yeah. And what is that period in which? columbia is going to start coming online what's that duration to get those 12 uh we see the first columbia is uh comes off the dry comes out of the shipyard in 20 late 2029 i think and uh i think her columbia's first patrol is in 2030 i I have to go back and double check those but that it's right in their time frame and then um, this is the way you do shipbuilding. We go uh, a year without, and then we buy two, and then we get into a cycle where we're buying one per year. So, because um, you want that to have that little time in between the first boat and the next one to wring out the problems in manufacturing, and so that when you start building the next boat, uh, you, you've got a lot of those things wrung out, a lot of the problems, the birth birth defect problems wrung out yeah. as best you can. Um, uh, but by 20, so we start building one per year, starting in, uh, 33, I think. And then we'll have them all built by 2040, 2042, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's that time in Nuclecast where I like to bring out my genie, Bob. Uh-oh. And if I, I rub the lamp, genie, Bob pops out. And uh, I didn't tell you this before the show, but Bob grants three wishes to all guests, but the wishes have to be about the subjects we've been talking about. So, Curtis, you've got three wishes about the Navy's nuclear program. What is your first wish? First wish. Uh, That we don't run any problems with Columbia. Um, we don't think we're going to, but you're talking about a very expensive, very complex, very uh, labor intensive to build system. So if we can get away with not running into any problems with Columbia and getting it fielded on time uh, and out into the, into the force on time, I think the Navy will be extremely happy. <laughs> so that'd be the first wish. It's a reasonable um, wish. Yeah, uh, I, I guess paired to it is, uh, and it may even just be a part of one, is actually to field the new um, Takamo airplane without too much problems and getting it out. Because that the 707 airframe that Takamo is on now were the last 707s off the production line way back when. So they're they're starting to get old and starting to show it. And so we need to get to replacing those. 
Um, wish two or three, depending on how you look at it. Uh, did we figure out how to better understand and integrate the 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 it's it's the conventional nuclear integration discussion that keeps uh, popping its head up every once in a while uh, and it's really a, a, a from my perspective it's really a, uh, the wish is that we really understand how these conventional and nuclear all fit together across the spectrum because if you understand that you can use nuclear uh not employ nuclear, but use nuclear to support that whole conventional fight and deterrence and back it all up. Um, so if we can, if we can get to a better understanding of how to integrate all this stuff back together, like we probably should have always, uh, then maybe that'll help the nation as a whole. Um, and number three, I, off the top of my head, I can't come up with a number three, but I think if we solve those two things, we'd solve a whole big problem, a bunch of stuff. Well, let me ask you one, you know, there was one other topic that Frank Miller talked about and that was sort of relevant to, that was, well, definitely relevant to the Navy. And that was, there has been, you know, a discussion for many years. It was part of the, what, the 2017 uh, NPR and that, of course, NPR. 2018 NPR. Uh, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> of course, slick them in the submarine launch yep. cruise missile. Yep. Uh, if let's suppose hypothetically that, you know, the administration says, you know what? The security environment's changed. Russia, China, North Korea, you know, potentially now we, let's say we see a, a nuclear Iran and we say, yep, we've got to build slick them in. What would it take for the Navy to be able to then go and both build the the actual weapon and then field the weapon? Um, programmatically, that depending on how you approached it, that probably wouldn't be that big of a problem. Uh, we could probably do it. It'd probably be expensive, just like most everything these days is. It's going to be expensive and it's going to, it's going to put burdens on whatever force you give it to uh, that you just have to understand and figure out how to deal with. Um, the biggest thing that we really need to understand uh, in order to get there is what's the requirements that this thing is it needs to do. I mean, we talk about deterrence, which is a valid requirement. Yes, we need these, these uh, capabilities to deter um, and uh, address the problem set of, you know, uh, limited use nuclear conflict by an adversary. But what is the operational perspective to that question? You know, yeah, it's good to say deterrence, but what do you mean by that? Is it something that you want in theater all the time? Is it something that uh, you want to be able to, push forward at the right time, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, what kind of capabilities do you want this thing to have? Do you want it, you want it to be variable yield? you want it to be just low yield or high yield or, and the combatant commanders really need to understand how they are, would be potentially using this thing 
of Slickham Inn in their uh, O-Plan conflict and how it supports, how, how they would use it supports deterrence. Uh, and so that Navy can understand that so that when, then we can look at the solution set to say, okay, well, if you want something that is going to do X, Y, and Z, then I can build this thing and it'll do X, Y, and Z, and it'll be at this cost and this. So the biggest thing right now, it would be, we need to nail down the requirements on exactly what it is we're talking about. Um, we've gotten some way down that path from the 2018 NPR. So there was some, there was some work done to get us down that path, but uh, <clears throat> it was only enough to support uh, basic decisions. We've got to get moved past that to really nail down what the requirements look like, what it is we're asking the system to do, what it is we're asking the Navy to provide, and how that that would be supported and fielded and manned and equipped and what it would go on, you know, so... Uh, that's probably the biggest thing that needs to be done up front is understanding what we're truly want from this system so that we can build it. Yeah. So as we end the show, what would be the takeaway you would like listeners to leave this episode with in terms of understanding the Navy's nuclear mission? Um. It's a big job. The Navy is doing it well. Um, we've got big, uh, big projects out ahead that we need to keep staying on, and we're we're, we're getting there. Uh, um, the nation can sleep at night because the Navy's on duty, along with the <laughs> Air Force. <laughs> All right. Well, well said. Well said, Curtis Buckles. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you okay. coming on Nuclecast. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. Well, it was good to chat with Curtis again. I think the last time I saw him was at the Stratcom Symposium. Uh, you know, it was our first time to ever really talk about Navy issues. And so we started big and we started broad. And I, I think in future episodes, we'll we'll try to talk the ASW mission. We'll, we'll have a submarine commander on and talk about life on a submarine. We'll... You know, we'll have the, somebody from the Tacomo mission and talk about what does that mean? And, you know, how, does, how are those missions conducted? So we want to do more with the Navy and help, uh, you know, you listeners understand the Navy's mission and the Navy's role in nuclear. But it was good to have Curtis, good to talk some of those big, broad topics and, you know, talk about Columbia and, you know, what would it take to get uh, slick men online? And so I enjoyed uh you know that chat with Curtis. Hopefully, you do as well. This has been a production of the Anwar Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumfall. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn. Facebook and Twitter at NuclearCast.